0: Welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientists, from immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. season I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited who are the main thermal fissure distributors in Ireland and I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. So Professor Jacinta O'Sullivan is my guest on the podcast today. So Jacinta is a professor in translational oncology at the Trinity Translational Medicine Institute and is education lead for the Trinity St James's Cancer Institute. So Jacinta's research focuses on new treatments for gastrointestinal cancer patients, both colorectal and esophageal cancers, in collaboration with clinical and surgical teams at St. James's Hospital. Um, And as my internal examiner for my PhD, Viva, earlier this year, it's an honour to sit down and chat with you today, Jacinta, but also slightly surreal to be this side of the screen um, on Zoom and the one asking you the questions today.
1: So um, (laughs) thanks again for coming on the podcast no worries Megan I'm delighted to be part of this podcast and I suppose now I'm in the hot seat where you're asking me all the questions as opposed to the Viva a couple of months ago no it's a pleasure and I'm I'm delighted to um
0: be here this morning Yeah, well, hopefully now this won't go on for a few hours like the last time. (laughs) (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Jacinta, I suppose just to start in, I want to get a sense of what you were like when you were younger, when you were in school, were you interested, always interested in science or what were your passions at that time?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose in primary school. So I went to St. Michael's Primary School in Nathai, County Kildare and throughout primary school. I suppose later in the years in primary school, I just all I wanted to do was be a teacher. And I suppose I am a teacher in a a different format at the moment, but teaching was a big interest of mine um, towards, you know, fifth and sixth class of primary school. And then when I went to secondary school, it was really my science teacher in fifth year in St. Mary's um, Secondary School, again in a thai-canticle there, where she really instilled in me the strong interest around genetics. And I just kind of fell in love with the whole idea of Meldinian genetics and how this was controlling traits like eye color and hair color and some of our other phenotypic features um, in our bodies. And, you know, I think I used to go home and discuss after science class what we had discussed and hoped other people would think it was just as interesting as I did. So, So I suppose my early interest in science really stemmed when I was in secondary school and it was around genetics. And I suppose that's what led me to then do a science degree in UCD. And I graduated with a degree in cell and molecular genetics from UCD. And I suppose, you know, I had a love of science. I had a love of teaching. um, But it really wasn't until I was in third year in science that I got a summer bursary to do research during the summer months. And it was then it really kind of sparked my interest, this this is what I want to do. Just the idea that, you know, you could ask novel, important questions, you know, carry out important experiments and then get an answer. Maybe the answer that you didn't think you would get, but you would, you know, get an answer to the question that you pose. So it was from third year in science in UCD that I decided, you know, following my degree, I really want to pursue research and a higher degree in research. And then in, when I was finishing up Fourth year in cell and molecular genetics in UCD, and there was an opportunity to do a PhD in collaboration with the Adirondack Biomedical Research Institute in upstate New York. So investigators from that cancer institute and came over to UCD to interview students. And really, I suppose, you know, I just said, okay, I'll just go for it and probably not thinking it totally through um, and committing to do uh, four to five years of a PhD in the States. So, so I was successful in getting that scholarship and I embarked on that PhD um, in upstate New York back in 1995. So it, the, the Research Institute was ideally situated in this beautiful place in upstate New York called Lake Placid. So in addition to having this great research institute to work in, um, there were opportunities to go skiing, hiking, you know, so it was a beautiful part of America uh, to live in as well. Um, So so I really enjoyed that. And I suppose that's when I started my cancer research experience. Um, And I worked with uh, Professor Martin Tenniswood. He was my PI in the Adirondack Biomedical Research Institute. And it happens I'm still collaborating um, with Martin through studies we're doing here in Trinity. And so I completed uh, my PhD there. And halfway through the PhD, uh, we moved to the University of Notre Dame. Indiana. So that's where I finished my PhD. And then I thought I would come back to Ireland, but opportunities then arose on the West Coast of America. And I went as an NIH funded fellow to the University of Washington in Seattle. And that was just such a beautiful part of the country. Um, and it was my PhD was in cancer research, but more kind of the cell biology and the molecular biology of cancer research. And it was when I moved to the University of Washington in Seattle as a postdoc, I then started really focusing on translational research. Mm translational research that would have an impact on the care of cancer patients. And that's where um, my translational interest in gastrointestinal diseases actually began through my uh, postdoctoral uh, research training. So so loved the States, uh, spent almost nine years, thought I was wow. just going for my PhD, um, but spent almost nine years there and loved every minute of it, received excellent training and had great mentorship from, um, like I mentioned, Professor Martin Tenniswood and also uh, Professor Peter Rabinovich, who I worked with in the Department of Pathology in the University of Washington. But I always had this desire to come home. Mm. And during that time, I suppose, you know, I returned to Ireland in 2003 And, you know, it was a really good time to come back. You know, the country was thriving. There was a lot of money for research at that time. So I returned in 2003 to the Center for Colorectal Disease in St. Vincent's Hospital in conjunction with UCD. And the position there was really to establish a translational uh, research group Focused on gastrointestinal diseases, and I think in Ireland we're very, very fortunate in the the the, the pathway our patients follow. You know, a lot of the patients go back to the same hospital for routine um, follow up appointments. And it's easy to engage our Irish patients in, you know, engaging in research activities. And they're they're absolutely fantastic. And without their consent to get involved in our studies, we would not be able to perform any of this translational research with the hope of providing better treatments or diagnostics to help care for these cancer patients. So I spent... Seven years in the Centre for Colorectal Disease and worked with an excellent multidisciplinary team there. And it was in 2010 then I joined Trinity College Dublin in the Department of Surgery to continue um, my translational gastrointestinal research program and also to establish educational structures around oncology. And I've been there ever since.
0: <laughs> Before we kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of the research, I mean, just take me back to, you know, the, your first day in New York. Like, were you excited? Yeah. Were you nervous? And also just the, the thought of, because I know PhDs in America take longer. in Mm -hmm. Ireland so was that a worry or were you just excited to get started yeah
1: well one I was excited you know back in 1995 you know funding to carry out PhDs or funding to carry out projects within Ireland was quite limited and I suppose one of the bonuses in engaging in this scholarship program with the Adirondack Biomedical Institute is that funding it wasn't limited Also, the technologies that you were going to be exposed to were state of the art. So the the environment you were going to go to um, was very exciting. It was daunting in that, you know, like I said, Lake Placid was this very, very small town in upstate New York. And to get there, I had from Dublin, I had to get three planes. And as I was going from one plane to the next, the planes were getting smaller and smaller. So, you know, in the back of my mind is how small is this town I'm going to, to embark on research activities. So I suppose it was a bit daunting in a way, but I didn't really dwell on it. I suppose I dwelt more on the opportunity that I was getting to do and to, you know, obtain international uh, research experience. Um, And therefore, you know, I connected with a wider group. I actually met met my husband um, in upstate New York when I was there um, so it, it brought to me far more opportunities as well than I thought would ever exist. So for me, it was a very po- positive experience and probably made me grow up faster as a researcher, having to be probably a little bit more independent in travelling abroad um, versus staying at home.
0: Yeah, definitely. And even just what you said there, that in the in the middle of your PhD, you moved, like that was a mm. big move, wasn't it? Because it that was to Huge. Indiana or somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So think about it, like we were coming from upstate New York and, you know, the, the states is so vast that, you know, we were traveling across to the Midwest, which, you know, driving took a couple of days. So there was some downtime in, you know, kind of setting the lab back up again but during that downtime, we had kind of positioned it well that you would do a lot of writing during that time as well you you asked me the question you know usually phd's take much longer in the states and we were still the, the students that received these scholarships to go to the adirondack biomedical research institute we were still registered ucd students so we didn't have to embark on the extensive course material, you know, the coursework that other American students would have to do. Um, and luckily, we got home every Christmas as well for for a good period of time.
0: And so coming back then, so you were what nearly nine years in, in the mm-hmm. States. Was there ever a, a time where you thought you would settle down there or did you always want to come home?
1: <laughs> That's an interesting question. My last year in the States, I got a green card. So it was there was an opportunity to stay there. And I actually went along the whole process of even getting to the point where I for to get U.S. citizenship, I had a scheduled interview. But that date was, you know, you know, we, we, we turned to Ireland way before that date. And so I did have to make that decision. Um, but I think I made the right decision.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I've spoke to many people who, who have researched in the ERC or in mm. St. Vincent's. And it seems like at that time, it was just such a hive of activity. And there were so many different groups there at the time, all working together. And, you know, the, that the translational aspect is so important.
1: Yeah, so, so important. And I like I said, I spent seven years working in the Education uh, Research Center in Vincent's, And what it did was, you know, a lot of the groups there were really their primary focuses on accelerating translational research discoveries. So you now you were working with, you know, I was directing the gastrointestinal program, but you were working with the breast cancer team, the rheumatology team, which you're now part of, and lots of other different translational groups. And what it what it did was, you know, during those social interactions over a coffee, you know, the best ideas were stimulated when you talk to another translational group. And really, while we're all in our own silos working on different disease states, usually the biology is very, very similar. So, you know, the process of angiogenesis in inflammation and cancer are very, very, very similar. So sparking ideas across the different translational groups in the ERC was really, really key. And I really enjoyed that interaction. And, you know, a question
0: I do kind of tend to ask people as well as, you know, who would you look back and say were your mentors, um, even in school or even someone who just encouraged you to just go for it, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the two mentors I had during my PhD and postdoctoral training were key to me. And, you know, I suppose during my PhD, you know, Professor Martin Tenniswood, really gave you the freedom to develop your own ideas. So I I was never in a situation in probably any lab I've worked in where you kind of followed what the PI told you to do. Obviously, the PI directed you towards, you know, an important question, but gave you the freedom to design experiments that would address that question. And I think initially, probably as a young PhD student, you know, it might seem a bit daunting at the start, but really, it was an excellent training to begin thinking independently about how you would address a really important question. And again, during postdoctoral um, training work with Peter Benevich in uh, Seattle, he was getting you writing grants early as a postdoc, you know, you know, writing, you know, detailed papers, writing detailed reviews. So I suppose from a mentorship point of view, Allowing the student or the postdoc to independently think, I think, is a really important facet. Obviously, they have to be mentored and you have to train them. But I think um, providing um, an environment where they can independently think to become their own independent um, researchers, Mm. I think is a very, very important trait to nurture in students and fellows that you're mentoring.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about the field of, you know, gastrointestinal um, malignancies and cancer. And then I suppose where your research fits into that.
1: Yeah. So I I suppose in our uh, translational gastrointestinal cancer program, we study a number of different um, GI cancers. And so the two main ones we would study would be esophageal adenocarcinoma and colorectal cancer. And, you know, if I start with esophageal cancer, obviously, you know, the the survival rates for this cancer are quite poor in that some of the survival rates can have a dismal rate of about 15 percent. And in comparison to, let's say, other cancer types and that would have better survival rates, like, let's say, for example, breast cancer, there's very little targeted therapies available for this cancer. And if we look at the incidence rates of this cancer, it's rapidly rising. And interestingly enough, it's rapidly rising with increasing obesity rates. And it's one of the top cancers that is most tightly linked to obesity. So I think, you know, you know, obviously as a nation, you know, our obesity rates are massively rising. And I think we don't fully appreciate the downstream effects that obesity status has on our body. You know, not only in promoting maybe us, you know, getting diabetes and heart disease, but also it can be a trigger to start the development of many different cancer types. So esophageal cancer would be one cancer type we look at. And the other one is colorectal cancer. Um, and in both of these cancer types, we also look at the pre-inflammatory diseases associated with developing these cancers. So for instance, in esophageal adenocarcinoma, it's Barrett's esophagus, which is an inflammatory disease. And these patients have to be monitored to make sure they, their disease does not progress to display their cancer. And in colorectal cancer, We uh, study ulcerative colitis, which is an inflammatory disease um, again. So so we're looking in these two different gastrointestinal uh, cancer types. We have an active translational program running across the cancer patient's journey. So we have projects looking at cancer prevention. And projects looking at developing uh, diagnostics to be able to segregate those patients that will and won't respond to the current therapies they receive. And we run an active drug discovery program where we have identified and patented a number of small molecule drugs, which we hope could target the large population of patients that currently don't respond to uh, the current standard of care. And the fourth pillar we work on in collaboration with our excellent physiotherapists in Trinity College, Dublin, Professor Juliet Hussey and Ema Guinan's uh, group is that we look at how prescribed interventions and, you know, exercise interventions or dietetic interventions can actually um, be helpful in reducing inflammation in these patients. So I suppose... The whole program kind of spans the whole cancer patient's journey from prevention, diagnosis, treatment to survivorship.
0: And, you know, maybe talk to me a little bit about those small molecule inhibitors that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so that's so an interesting question, uh, Megan. So I suppose overall, before I get into kind of the nitty gritties of some of the inhibitors, you know, one of our biggest interests in GI cancers is understanding the tumour microenvironment. OK, and when we think of tumours, you know, when I started my PhD many years ago, I was, you know, culturing tumour cells, but they're in isolation. And it was then, you know, when you start working with patients' tissues, you really realize the degree of complexity of a tumor. So a tumor is not one cell type. So you might have a drug that will kill off tumor cells. But unless you investigate how that drug works on a three-dimensional ex vivo tumor tissue, you're not really going to fully recapitulate the treatment in vivo. Mm. Um, So it's really important. So one of the the big focuses of our lab is to try and get a much better understanding of all the different processes that are activated within the tumour microenvironment. And more importantly, what processes go awry? And can we target those processes to boost response within the patient? And, you know, when you're dealing, so most of the questions we would answer in our translational uh, cancer program are directly linked to the clinical challenges that the medical team would see on a day to day basis. And with translational research, it might take a bit longer than carrying out basic research. And as you as you well know, you know, Mm. acquiring, you know, samples following patient consent and, you know, carrying out the experiments. It can take a while to get enough power in a study to then publish that study. But when you do and you show clinical correlations or pathological correlations or outcome correlations, they're very meaningful or you hope they would be meaningful to take to the next level. So during our work in the Chamber Microenvironment, we really began to see that there was a number of different processes within the microenvironment that was coinciding with patients becoming resistant to therapy. And when I'm talking resistant to therapy, our Radiation therapy, chemotherapy, or some of the targeted therapies that are given to colorectal cancer patients. And two processes that we found that were tightly connected with controlling resistance to treatment in these patients was energy metabolism and angiogenesis. So I suppose this is summarizing probably 15 years' work now. But um, so we, we decided, okay, these mechanisms, and we had proven this in ex vivo explants. We'd also taken, you know, large amounts of patient uh, samples and did lots of different screens and lots of different validation experiments to show that an upregulation of angiogenesis and an upregulation of energy metabolism were two processes that were entwined together and really correlating with a treatment resistance phenotype for both esophageal cancer patients and colorectal cancer patients. So we decided, how are we going to develop new Therapies to try and reduce these processes within the tumor without affecting the normal tissue mm. and then response to treatment. And like I mentioned to you, you know, we have a cohort of non-responders and responders, but there can be up to 70% of patients that will not respond to the current standard of care. So while it is important when we're developing our biomarker signatures to segregate those non-responders and responders, it's equally or even more important to be able to have something that can actually target those 70% of non-responders to improve clinical management and improve patient outcome. So when we decided, okay, well, we're going to try and develop small molecule inhibitors um, that will target energy metabolism and antiogenesis, we knew we couldn't do this work in vitro because we needed an in vivo screening method. So in collaboration uh, with Professor Brendan Kennedy's lab in UCG, we used a zebrafish model system to do this. And they're an excellent model system for drug screening. And the the, the strain we used was a flea one strain, where all the vessels in the trunk, you could see they were all fluorescent green. So it was really easy to actually screen 5,000, 6,000 compounds to see which compound had the greatest effect at either, you know, disrupting vessels or um, removing the vessels. So after a lot of years work in screening, um, we came up with a, a lead drug. This lead drug was called quinanip. And, you know, through a lot of functional assays, uh, we found that quininib and some of the analogs we developed from quininib could target the cysteine leukotriene receptor pathway. So we started off by trying to find a drug that would be anti and anti-metabolic. But the possible mechanism of action of this family of drugs, they had a very potent effect on inflammation. So in reducing inflammation and when you look at this, you know, while we were focused on angiogenesis and metabolism, it's also intertwined with the inflammatory microenvironment. So there's so much interaction of these processes. So we took these drugs then into human explants because we kind of said, OK, that's fine. We have our leads from our in vivo zebrafish screen and we will take it into human explants. And we were very fortunate in that the top leads that were coming out of the zebrafish were the top leads that were very active in human tissue. And again, we used the three dimensional explant model to test this because we could not um, look at cell lines. Um, And basically, what we've been able to do now with our lead drugs is we've been able to, you know, culture these biopsies. So the ideal situation for us is that the research labs are based five minutes from St. James's Hospital. So, you know, like you have in the rheumatology translation setting, we're able to get access to these biopsies following patient consent very quickly back to the lab to be able to culture them. And we're very fortunate in to be able to culture the whole biopsy. So you still have that cell to cell connection and communication between cells that are still alive together as you're treating this piece of tissue. And I think that's really important for us because, you know, in vivo, you're not just treating one cell type within a cancer, you're treating the whole tumor and treating the whole tumor will make the cells, you know, signaling in this microenvironment very, very different to if you were just, you know, treating cells in a dish as a monolayer culture. And what we've done is we've used this model to really look at how our drugs respond to different GI cancer tumors We're able to even culture these tumours under different oxygen concentrations because there's no point in developing a drug that works well when you culture tissues under normoxic conditions when up to 60 to 70% of these tumours are severely hypoxic in the patient. So throughout all our studies, we're trying to create environmental conditions that would most closely mimic what's going on within the patient. And in this model, we can test how our drugs act. You know, how do they affect, you know, markers of angiogenesis, energy metabolism, et cetera. But most importantly, we can take the media from these explants and actually put it on immune cells. Because when you're trying to develop a drug to target treatment resistance in gastrointestinal cancers or any other cancers, It's not just important to look at how the tumour responds to the drug, but it's equally important to look at how the immune cells respond in that patient to that treatment. And think about it, it's going to in a cancer, in a growing um, cancer, it's going to be activated T cells that can eliminate that tumour. So you really, we're very focused on looking at the crosstalk between the tumour microenvironment, whether it's untreated or treated, let's say with our novel patented drugs. But subsequently, how does the immune cells in that patient also respond? And what we have found is, Not to go into it in too much detail, but what we have found is, let's say in colorectal cancer patients, when we take colorectal explants and treat them with bevacismab, which is a targeted anti-VEGF targeted Mm. therapy, and we culture these and we take the media off them and put them on dendritic cells or T-cells. In those, in those responders to that uh, targeted therapy in, in vivo, the secretome that is released following treating the explant plant with bevacizumab it can activate the immune cells and that's what you want in a, in, a, in a cancer patient. However, in the large amount of patients that when we went back and got their clinical outcome data in the large amount of patients which can be up to 65% of patients that did not respond to the targeted therapy, our ex vivo model could predict that. We were able to show that the proteins released from the tumor microenvironment with bevacizumab treatment, when we put that media on dendritic cells and T cells, it inactivated the immune cells. So, so you know, this is just kind of one example where we're using these ex vivo models to better understand one, the processes that are going on in the tumor microenvironment that might lead to treatment resistance. But two, they're an excellent model system to look at at the activity of a novel drug and how that novel treating that tumor microenvironment with that novel drug might crosstalk to the immune cells. So so for us, it is important what's going on in the microenvironment, but equally important how treating a microenvironment communicates with the immune
0: cells. Yeah, because, you know, as you said earlier, the cells aren't in isolation and they're all communicating with each other. And not only, I suppose, in, in my research, I think about immune cells communicating with each other, but obviously you've got tumour cells communicating with, exactly. with the immune cells. Um And I suppose like one area which I'm very interested in as well as the whole metabolism, bioenergetics. Um, How did you get into that area why did you decide to look at that in the tumour microenvironment? And why is it important to look at that? Mm, mm.
1: I suppose we got into looking and focusing on the mitochondria, I suppose, a little bit by chance in that, you know, back, you know, when I was a postdoc, The the primary things we were looking at in disease progression in gastrointestinal cancers was genomic instability events. So these were instability events that were happening within the nucleus. Okay. And you know, we did a little bit of microsatellite uh, mitochondrial instability, but it was actually a reviewer of a paper of ours that said, well, if you overexpressed mitochondrial antioxidants, would that have a downstream effect at reducing nuclear instability events? And we're kind of like, oh my gosh, that's a completely different study. What are you asking us to do? Um, so we did go back and do it, and to our surprise, that you regulating mitochondrial oxidative stress can directly influence the nuclear instability event. So that's how we got into really the mitochondria probably over <laughs> 20 years ago. It was probably that one reviewer that we probably, you know, didn't like their comments that's at the so beginning, funny. but really opened up a whole new area for us and then you know we spent many years looking at different aspects of mitochondrial biology and disease progression and regulating treatment response but then it was really it was through studies where we had looked at mitochondrial arrays and the biggest things that were coming up were energy metabolism genes. And that kind of led us into then looking at real time energy metabolism. And I suppose we were fortunate at that time where we really started to interrogate energy metabolism, that, you know, Seahorse, you know, technologies like seahorse equipment became available that allowed us to do that um, both in vitro. But most importantly, we were able to optimize that to work on patient samples.
0: Yeah. The other question I was going to ask you is talk to me about the Institute in St. James's because it seems like mm-hmm. it's a, like nearly like the ERC, as in it's all translational. You're very close to the hospital and you all kind of work very closely together.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose over the last couple of years, we've even been working even more closely together um, through the development of the Trinity St. James's Cancer Institute. Um, so just last year, we received OECI accreditation, the organization for European cancer institutes, we were awarded OECI cancer center status. So that was very important. A lot of hard work by many, many people went into to getting that with the with the goal now of going and aiming to have a comprehensive uh, cancer institute at, at Trinity and St. James's. But but you're right, you know, being placed on a hospital campus we have to be in this location to carry out translational research work. And on a day-to-day basis, we're liaising with the surgeons, the medical oncologists, radiation oncologists, gastroenterologists. And it's that multidisciplinary team working together. Um, One, it's very exciting. Every single day is completely different. Um, And I think the students and the fellows benefit from that clinical association as well because they're hearing from the the clinical and the surgical leaders on the clinical challenges they're facing on a day-to-day basis. And then they're bringing back those clinical questions to the lab knowing that they're working on a pertinent problem that these patients have to live with um on a day-to-day basis so so yes excellent open communication um that multidisciplinary nature just makes the training environment and for all of us uh, very stimulating and it
0: probably you know maybe refocuses your research maybe puts things into perspective because you know if you're late in the lab and stressing about an experiment but you know that this is going to impact hopefully yeah. a patient and because it has come from a patient just that morning um, I exactly. know for, for me that's definitely what I feel with our translational uh, team and, and I'm sure that your team feel mm-hmm. the same
1: Yeah. And, you know, the students and fellows that are, you know, funded to work on these translation projects, they really appreciate every single piece of tissue that comes over. It's like gold to them because. You know, there's, sometimes they're on rotation lists for you know the next biopsy, etc. And um, but I think it's always important when they start their training to visit the endoscopy suite or you know speak to the surgeons to know that there's a patient behind every single piece of tissue. And I think that's really, really important. And again, I think they they all acknowledge that. And I think that's why it's even more important that they make the best use of that piece of material. Um, for their studies, I suppose getting the material is one thing, but you know, without the detailed clinical team and the data managers, you know, the data means nothing unless you have the detailed clinical, pathological, and outcome data for these patients. And you, when you're gathering up all of. This data and it can take a long time, like I mentioned before, translational research is much slower than basic research. And um, but when you start getting correlations and it starts correlating with staging, you know, response to treatment, outcome for these patient patients, it's very exciting for the, the researchers doing this work to then say, well, could this then be taken to the next level?
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And kind of on the back of, you know, just hearing your passion for what you do, I'm wondering where that passion comes from and what do you love most about what you do? And I suppose on the flip side, what do you find the most frustrating aspect?
1: (laughs) Oh, okay, I'll keep this short. (laughs) But um, I suppose my passion is for learning new things. And I think, you know, you know, this job, like I said, every day is completely different. You know, you know, the research angle of my job is probably, the nicest angle because you know I love the research meetings you know the stimulation of ideas you know even if something doesn't pan out the way you thought usually those studies actually open up other doors which you know it's very very exciting so the creativity the the passion for you know delivering new information that maybe is not known within that subject area that's that's really stimulating and it it keeps you going as a PI and you hope to stimulate that passion in the students and the fellows that you're supervising as well Um, and I think you know mentorship is really important it's it's not just about producing results etc it's allowing the trainees to think about their data think about alternative interpretations of the data, thinking outside the box. And, you know, I hope as a mentor, I provide that environment to the students um, and the fellows. You know, I suppose the not so nice things is obviously, you know, administrative work, et cetera. And also, I suppose the pressure to continuously keep the lab well funded because, you know, you might have three or four active grants going, but you need to be now thinking of, okay, where's the next five or six grants coming from, Mm. you know, to keep the team productive, to keep people in the lab. You know, we hate losing good talent from the lab. And so that's probably the more challenging aspects, but in translational biology, we probably have quite a diverse range of grant, you know, pathways that we can apply to as well, um, both academic and industry collaborations.
0: Yeah, I think um, many people mention admin as one and yeah, the, the funding as the other. It seems to have a lot. <laughs> but just into, you know, one of my last questions for you is if you weren't a scientist, if you weren't in the position you are now, where do you think your life would have ended up?
1: Um, I suppose going back to the first point I mentioned to you in primary school, I think probably a primary school teacher. Um, I suppose, you know, teaching and trying to relay knowledge, in my in my view, it's just a passion I have. So it was the passion of teaching. And then when I fell in love with the research side of things, I suppose they, those two then came together. And I suppose in my current position, that's what I'm doing is research and teaching. So probably a teacher, a primary or secondary school teacher if I wasn't um, based uh, in the Department of Surgery in Trinity. Perfect. Well,
0: um, thank you so much. It's been it's been lovely to talk to you um, uh, in a more casual setting. And uh, (laughs) thanks again for for coming on and chatting to me.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Megan. It's been very enjoyable this morning and thanks for the invitation to speak. At your very successful podcast sessions, it's really grown legs now. So, yeah. um, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thanks, Will.
0: So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.